Welcome to the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, where it's all about slashing your debt, slashing your taxes, and creating a liberated lifestyle. And now, your host, who met his wife while training for the 400 meters in Seattle and is eating gluten-free while lusting after bread, Dave Denniston. Hello, my friends. This is Dave Deniston, your host, and welcome back to the latest episode of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast. And welcome back to our monthly fireside chat with a physician to get to know their journey, their joys, and their struggles with finances and outside of finances. Well, my friends, in this show, I try and dig deep to find some really interesting people. And as a matter of fact, our next guest was actually recently featured on The White Coat Investor. And this wasn't just some guest post that I read. This physician, he's worked with some of his colleagues to do an assessment of residents and fellows' personal finances literacy. So in this interview today, we're going to talk about his life journey, of course, but we're also going to get into that assessment as well as to learn about his journey and his experiences. So I can't wait to learn about his advice for us. Please help me welcome Dr. Fad Ahmad from Rogue Dad MD. Welcome, Fad. Thank you. Great to be here. Well, this is your first podcast, so here you are. We'll take it easy, but then we're going to get into some of the good stuff. So first, tell us a bit about you, Fod. You know, what was it like for you uh, in terms of growing up? Uh, were you someone that was here in the States? Uh, were you growing up abroad? What, what's your background? So both of my parents uh, were born abroad. They're from Pakistan. They emigrated here to the States in the 70s, and I actually was born here and have born and raised. And so I'm the child of immigrants, uh, but my older brother and my younger brother and I were all born here in the U.S. And so because of that, we've certainly had a mix of influences in my life with parents who have the majority of their family and then my extended family overseas, you know, up until the last maybe 10 years when more people have been coming here and I have cousins and now nephews and nieces here. And so part of my childhood was traditional American childhood of going to baseball games and Little League and regular school, uh, but also going back to visit family in Pakistan every couple of years. It's a pretty hard journey to make. Uh, and then when here, trying to also sort of balance the middle, having my sort of traditional American life because that's where we were, but also my parental influence about having exposure to different culture a religion that's not mainstream here that we're you know followers of so the education on that the family and friends related to that so it's sort of a, a mix of two worlds was my childhood i guess you could say so was that something that was a struggle you think for you growing up or something you embraced what what was that like you know honestly as a child i think i just didn't think about it because it was just my experience i knew that i had family here and friends there and i did these things and while I didn't necessarily spend time with my school friends who were born and raised here, parents born and raised here from a different background, talking about my religious holidays or my overseas family, um, I had friends, you know, and I had friends who were that was also part of their background, and so I'd more likely talk about it with them. It was just more of a you you go from one group to another, and you just sort of naturally shift your focus in terms of what's comfortable for that group. And as a kid, you just I just sort of did it. I didn't really think about it a whole lot. I think about it a lot more as an adult than I ever did as a child. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you, you told me before the interview that, that uh, and I might mispronounce this, so forgive me, but that around family, you're Fahad. 
like for example, versus your American friends call you fad. Uh, so you just look at some of those little differences, and you can really gain an appreciation for both cultures, can't you? Yeah. So yeah, as you said, so my traditional pronunciation, my name is actually Fahad with a softer D, more like a TH at the end. And as I was telling you earlier, I didn't really think about the fact that when I was with my family or uh, friends that had, you know, immigrant backgrounds or Muslim backgrounds, they would say Fahad or something slightly different. Whereas when I was around family or friends that were entirely American, they would say it with a hard D, Fahd, more like rhyming with Todd. And I, I didn't even think about that till I was in high school and more cognizant of those mm. different groups sort of interacting more as, you know, friends more likely collided and intermingled a little bit to sort of re- recognize that. It sort of just happened as a child. My parents were probably cognizant of it. I certainly wasn't. And now I've got young children and it's something I'm very cognizant of as a parent because I went through it and we actually try to make it an emphasis to make sure that you no, know, just one one pronunciation Per child, let's not have two or three ways to say your name. It should just be said one way. <laughs> oh man! So as you grew up, were your physician, were your parents physicians, or was that something part of your household? What was that like? There are a lot of physicians in my family. While I think my parents are very happy and proud, I went into medicine. I was not a trailblazer in any regards, which is very different than many other families. So my father is a physician. Uh, my mother basically helps run his private practice and had opportunities to go into medicine, but ended up helping more run the family and the practice. Uh, I have physician both Frank, both my brothers are now physicians. I have aunts and uncles, and my grand one of my grandfathers was a physician. I've got in-laws that are physicians. Uh, I I couldn't. It would take me a minute to count up how many physicians are in my extended family. It's not uh, it's not a small number. Wow. What was it like for your dad? You know, he, he came here to the States. He, he was a, a doctor. Did he have to go through residency uh, at that time? Or what, yeah, so what happened with him when he did school internationally uh, in Bangladesh, actually, and did his training here. And, you know, I think his experience was certainly very different than mine, both as an immigrant and as life 40 years ago when he was going through training. And so and he, he occasionally tells us stories about it. He doesn't really go into depth, but... You know, I think coming from another country with English, he's proficient in English, fluent in English, but coming from another country as a Pakistani, as a Muslim, I, I think he certainly had more struggles just because of the environment, uh, which I think now is a little bit different for, you know, while there's certainly some modern political struggles for immigrants, I think it's still a little bit different than it was 40 years ago. And certainly his, well, his well, I, work I have, hours I have to imagine, longer. just to interrupt you, I, just, I have to imagine he's coming here and at that time, if it's the late 70s, that's the Iran-Contra crisis. And even though you weren't Iranian, um, I can imagine that it would have been difficult to get your, your foot in the door, given some of that political environment at the time. Yeah, you know, without going to a lot of depth, because that's his story, not mine, so I'm probably not really privileged to share it. He didn't give us a ton of, he hasn't always given us a ton of details about it. But yes, he, I think he definitely had to face some struggles. Uh, fortunately for my family and my you know, my brothers and my mom, he's extremely hardworking. And while he certainly faces struggles, he pushed through and he's made himself a very successful physician. And I think he worked very hard, still actually works very hard. He's, you know, he's old enough where he could have retired a long time ago, but he loves his work and continues to work. Well, I, I talk about this in a previous podcast episode about how um, I'm 36 years old and, and I grew up on DuckTales. And I love that, Joe. The, the immigrant edge is something that inspires me, even though I'm American born and a Caucasian male. 
Uh, I look at stories of, of your dad and getting the American dream. And man, I just think that is so cool. So was it something where, were you going in his office and you had a stethoscope around your neck or what was that journey like as uh, with having this whole family full of physicians uh, and your mom in the practice? Uh, what was that like for you growing up where it's like, oh, I want to be just like dad or how did that transpire? So growing up, I, you know, I was probably like most kids around here. I was like, oh, I, I should be a baseball player. I'm pretty good at baseball or I'm pretty good at this. I should do that. I certainly spent a lot of time uh, ultimately as a child in my dad's clinic and even rounding in the hospital, but not with the patient. So we, just because my parents had a busy practice and my dad saw lots of patients in the hospital on top of it, my older brother and I frequently got taken out to their clinic to help do paperwork or sit in back while they did work or go sit in the doctor's lounge and drink hot chocolate while he was rounding in, in a patient <laughs> unit or in a nursing home. So I spent quite a few random days or hours with my dad or my mom at the clinic or in the hospital. I was never really near the patients. I was mostly there just twiddling my thumbs, keeping busy, bringing, reading books, doing homework, or if they had odd jobs for me that I could help with in the clinic, then I would do that. Uh, I didn't honestly... and. Maybe this, you know, maybe I was just oblivious as a child. My wife would probably say I'm oblivious now, but uh, <laughs> I, I didn't really think about it as motivating me to go into medicine or to not go into medicine. It really wasn't even, I think as I was an adult and I thought back to what lifestyles could be for medicine as I was going to medicine, I reflected on what I saw and certainly having family in medicine, there's a general push to consider it and strongly consider it as a career, but I wouldn't say it directly consciously influenced my decision to go into medicine. There was probably some unconscious or subconscious influence. So can you think back, Fad, to that moment that's like, oh yeah, I want to be in medicine. What, what part of your journey did that moment happen for you? So, you know, for some people, it's an aha moment. I, I don't know that I had a clear aha moment. It was for me more of a gradual thing. I went into undergraduate uh, in my university expecting to go into business. I actually ended up obtaining a degree in business management. That is what my degree is in. Mm. And it was partway through the business degree that I realized that I didn't want to pursue straight into business because I thought originally going to undergraduate that I was going to get a business degree and get maybe get an MBA, enter some sort of corporate world type setting because uh, that's what I seemed to feel like it was going to be the right fit for me. And the closest thing to an aha moment was I was in some of my sort of senior level business classes, junior year of college, and I realized I enjoyed the material, but I wasn't really enjoying the interactions I had with the other business students. When I talked to them about what they wanted to do, what their goals were, it, we just didn't fit very well together. My personality, my thought process, what I liked and didn't like about the world of business was very different than them. My motivations were different. And I, that's sort of when I put it together. While medicine had always been in the back of my mind, because I actually had going into undergraduate a scholarship that actually guaranteed me admission to our university's medical school as long as I didn't, mm. as long as I got decent grades. I was actually guaranteed a med school spot there uh, if I wanted to use it. I actually wasn't planning on using it when I went there. I actually was planning on not doing it and going into something else, but I just maintained my grades easily enough. And then at some point I realized, you know what, I don't think business is the fit for me for a career right now. I would rather go ahead and go into medicine because the more I think about it, the more I interact with people that are going towards that world, the more I feel like that's actually where I fit best. Interesting. Wow. Well, that's fantastic. Well, I can really see just this molding for you uh, of these different steps along the way 
now to that interest in business obviously translates in this financial literacy thing we're going to be talking about here in a bit. Yes. Um, were you someone that was passionate about money? You know, what kind of influence with being around your folks? I know a lot of immigrants tend to be a lot closer on their money than many naturally born Americans. You know, what, what kind of influence was money having on you as you're getting into medical school? So my parents and I didn't have a lot of direct discussions about their personal finances, and that's just, you know, how they wanted to, to do it, and that's fine. But we certainly had a lot of discussions about finance in general. My dad, from a, when my older, so my older brother is a couple of years older than I, uh, than me. When when we were fairly young, I mean, this is late '80s. I was eight, nine years old. Uh, was already trying to try and teach us about investing. So he and I think part of this was because he was teaching himself, and I think part of this was he'd had a bad experience, and he never gave tons of details when I was a kid about what it was. But basically, he wanted us to make sure we knew the basics of investing even before the age of ten. So. Do you look upon those those moments as something where that got your passion, perhaps? That uh, was it. Did it work? I guess is is my question. You know, is that something you would recommend to other physicians of something that maybe you would do for your family, uh, as well as um, that that influence on you? I would say it laid a dormant seed that woke up later is probably the best way to put it because. It's funny that you know we talk about how much it really worked at the time. I was very engaged at the time. Part of it was when we did the investing, the stock market at the time was going up, and so my brother and I, you know, this was the '80s. You couldn't go online every day and check stock price or mutual fund price. We'd get the <laughs> newspaper, and yep. we'd go through the newspaper every day or a couple of days and find our mutual fund symbols and see how it was doing and compare and calculate things. And then at some point, I don't recall how far into the investment time frame we were. Uh, the first Gulf War happened and there was a major recession and the prices of everything cratered and we stopped making money and we hadn't been losing money. And I was roughly nine or 10 years old and I lost interest for a while because I was like, oh, it's no fun anymore. I'm not making money. <laughs> but probably the best lesson we had is, you know, we didn't ask him to sell the investments. We just, for, I just sort of forgot about it because I was like, oh, it's not fun to check this every day anymore. And they basically just left it alone and let it grow for a long time. And it ended up becoming a reasonable sum of money that they were able to use later for other things. And actually, when I was you know, older, to give a little bit of it to, back to me. And that's probably the best, best investment lesson I could have ever learned is invest and forget about it. You know, your time horizon could be 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Don't, don't worry about a recession. And it, the fact that I forgot about it and no one sold it was probably the best, probably the best basic investment principle I could have learned as a child. Interesting. Uh, so is that something that you're trying to pass on to your children as well in a similar lesson? Or how are you using that lesson uh, for your family today? So my oldest son is eight and not not quite at the age where my father had started teaching us. Uh, we're certainly talking to him and I'm talking to him about basic money principles. as not as much investment about money management, about understanding the value of the dollars in your wallet and what you should touch. And so... You know, part of what we do, this is just, you know, we don't have a comprehensive financial education plan for our kids figured out. But, you know, when he gets holiday money from the grandparents or birthday money or something is we basically say, okay, you can get this much to spend. Uh, This much should go into your college savings account and you should consider giving this percentage to a charity of your choice and sort of predetermine that, okay, this is the amount I get for me and the rest goes for other things that I never get back or will use at a later time. 
And if I can use it to help someone, particularly by giving to charity, that's something for an eight-year-old we've talked about many times. And so trying to have him pick a charity once a year that he gives a little bit of money to, uh, which he, he is big into dogs. He's always picking animal shelters and things like that is is sort of where we're at right now. He start, just actually started getting an allowance. And so you know, I think we're building towards it. I don't know that he's quite ready to have a sum of money given to him to invest, I would say. That's great. No, I, I love the advice. I, I love seeing this journey. So thank you for being so transparent and open about this. I'm really loving this conversation. So Fod, at the point where you're out of medical school now, did you have much in the way of student debt? Was it something that your parents were supporting you through? What what was that part of your financial journey like? I was very fortunate compared to a lot of my peers. My parents supported me a lot. And so part of the you know, part of the discussion before even going to undergraduate was, you know, I you know, I didn't know officially if I wasn't going to business or medicine. I actually was planning on wanting to go to a school much further away from where I grew up that was a more expensive school that you know, the tuition would have been twice of our our state school that I ended up at. And the discussion we had was, you know, the parents said, you know, they, we can help support you, but if you go to this place and then you're going to want to graduate school, eventually you're going to end up with a lot of loans. And we'd like to support you, and we don't want you to have a ton of loans. And so after a lot of discussion, I ended up at our state university with some scholarships. So my tuition for most of undergrad was, you know, not free, but, you know, fairly minimal. Uh, so I had very little tuition payments at all. Uh, and so my parents were able to help cover my room and board and the money they'd been saving for my college, they put most of it towards my medical school. So I did end up with some loans, but I was not six figures. I was much lower than that. And I was fortunate because both my parental help, which a lot of fam- people do not have as an option, but I also made a conscious decision to stay at my state university for undergraduate and medical school. And a lot of people, you know, when given that option, don't choose that option. And they choose an option that incurs 200,000 of undergraduate debt and 200,000 in med school debt. So, you know, part of it was parental advice and part of it was circumstance of what I had available. Absolutely. What I'm seeing as as a common theme in in some of the physicians that are really getting off to the right foot is we think about our kids, because in many cases we have practicing physicians and residents and fellows who are well out of medical school. But as we think of our kids, you know, to get them off on the right foot, I mean, I really can't emphasize enough keeping the cost of college education as low as possible really helps give them options. Um, and it's a huge financial sacrifice to end up paying for fifty or $60,000 a year for private education, whether it's coming out of the parent's pocket or the kid's pocket for the future. So uh, any thoughts on that with the, the rising cost of medical school and you know, $200,000, $300,000 of student debt? It's it's hard to predict. I, I, I think at some point there's going to be a breaking point where people simply can't afford the tuition or stop going because of the tuition. But right now, the medical schools that are charging 50000 you know, most of the big ones are filling their classes. They're not scrambling to get people to fill their spots. So it's just, to some degree, it's like any other free, you know, free market principle. You know, the demand is there, and so they can keep the price high. And at some point there might be a pushback to the tuition and people might start doing alternative medical education options. More people might go to the Caribbean or whatever it may be. Um, so at that point, I don't see the cost dropping anytime soon, though, though I would think the increase is going to have to slow at some point. Uh, but in terms of what individuals choose to do, sometimes you're limited by where you get accepted. You know, If you want to get accepted to places that charge $50,000 a year, then the choice is be a doctor or not be a doctor. Uh, right. So 
it's not always entirely circumstance or choice rather, but the circumstances will dictate it. And then if you're going to make that decision, you know, I think you have to be fully aware of what you're going into, you know, eyes wide open. And I, I frankly think current students and medical graduates are more aware of this than 10 years ago when I was going through medical school or graduate, or I guess while I was in residency 10 years ago, I think there's more awareness of it now of the need for better planning because of these skyrocketing debts. I think there's more financial savvy now. There's also more of a uh, people scared about it, uh, but there's also more awareness of the need to understand what you're getting yourself into. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned one of your big lessons early on one of the best pieces of maybe advice that wasn't given directly to you but you learned along the way was stay the course don't look at things on a daily basis and and get upset when you're not making money um what about in this journey where you you've gone through medical school you've gone through residency and now you're you're attending have you been making kind of any mistakes that really shaped your views on money during this time I don't think so. I got married one. I think it was literally one week after we graduated. I graduated medical school. So most of my financial journey uh, as a practicing physician, residency and beyond, has been my wife and I together. So you know, I share credit and blame, I guess, together for any successes we have and failures we have. I don't think we've made any critical mistakes. You know, I think we, in hindsight, I, you know, the more I learned about things like financial independence and early retirement, the more I say, oh. You know, it would have been nice to cut 300 bucks a month out of our rent in residency and not have as big of an apartment as we did. We weren't, we were never living on debt. We've never lived actually really beyond our combined salaries. And so I can't say that we made mistakes in that regard because we've always, you know, I think saved more than our peers. Since I've been in attending, we've been maximizing our workplace accounts. Uh, we've never had debt outside of the mortgage and then car loans that we paid off really fast. So I think we've avoided the big mistakes. We've had room on the margins where we could have done better and maybe accelerated our retirement date, which is undetermined as of yet. You know, I I don't think I've made any mistakes in terms of buying whole life insurance and losing $20,000 kind of mistake or buying a $70,000 car coming out of training on debt entirely kind of mistake. So we've avoided the catastrophic ones that a lot of my peers potentially make. I can see lots of small decisions here and there that could steer the course over the course of years that I would maybe do slightly differently had I had the thought process now, if I had that 10 years ago. Um, mm. You know, I, I what, what, go ahead. Can you think of any specific examples? You mentioned like maybe saving on rent, you know, for, for our residents and fellows and newly attending physicians, you know, what kind of adjustments would you make, you know, looking in hindsight? Now just those small little, small little changes that you think might so I, I would well, probably spend more time early in training trying to figure out not how much I want to spend, but how much I want to save. And that was really, really not exactly the way I thought coming out of training. I think more trainees now think that way. But at the time, my only real goal was to, you know, when I was in residency and fellowship, my goal was don't take out any debt, you know, or minimize whatever debt I had. So if I had to do a car loan, pay it off as quick as possible. And it was mostly let's get through till my wife was my wife was going through graduate school during part of my training. I was going through training. Let's let's get to when we actually have higher incomes, then we'll maximize our savings then. And I think that's actually okay, but what I really wish I could have done or had the foresight to do was, hey, you know what? You know, we probably don't need the three bedroom or two and a half bedroom apartment or one and a half bedroom apartments probably fine. 
and we probably don't need to buy this car new. We bought a car new when I was halfway through residency, which we could afford because we'd been saving a lot of money in cash. We hadn't been investing and just sort of sitting there. We paid it off pretty quickly. You know, we, you know, I, it was really my idea to buy it new. I would have bought one that was five years old that was just as good and lasted just as long, um, things along that line. So, you know, that would have saved five to $10,000 there. The rent would have saved five to $10,000 there. And these are, these are, you know, seemingly small decisions, though they're not, that each could have added five or $10,000 to our net worth 10 years ago, that over the course of 20 years is a couple hundred thousand dollars. And it's it's not even really just that. It's Part of it's the decisions on the margin about what your future net worth is. Part of it is also coming up with a, a view of what your spending life is gonna be. And if you decide early on that you always have to buy a new car and have the bigger apartment, it's hard to break away from that when you get more money to say, oh no, now that I've got more money, I'm going to buy the smaller house and the older used car. And so part of it is sort of having a philosophy from the beginning that we didn't really have a set philosophy of what we were going to do. So it's evolved over time. And having that early on, I think, would have been more beneficial. Mm. No, I love that. It's great advice. Well, I think the focus on the savings rather than the spending is is an interesting way to look at it because so often you know you talk about budgets you talk about all, all of those kinds of things and i think focusing on the the end of the day number is so important i think there's so many nuances that people get lost in you know should you save here or there or there or here and all those things are good and they're good to know and good to implement but at the end of the day it really comes down to what are you saving versus what are you spending and i, I really think that that's fantastic advice and then looking at each expense to say okay if if i want to do x y and z well maybe cutting a little bit here and there as you say it multiplies and adds to a bigger and bigger sum over time but hey you are where you are now right yes. and uh, thank goodness you didn't make any big mistakes uh, which sounds like some of your peers um, may have um, i want to switch um, gears for a second and Something that, as I was preparing for this interview, on your blog, Rogue Dad MD, uh, you don't just blog about finances, you blog, blog about faith, you blog about family. And as I've been meeting with physicians this year, it sounds like you're someone that's really super focused on saving and, and obviously financially savvy. Um, being from Pakistan, your folks, and obviously your name, it's not john smith or something you know super right. american per se um as i've having conversations with some physicians that have middle eastern indian pakistani uh, backgrounds they've really kind of switched some of their thinking on saving uh, because their concern, without getting into the politics side of it, but focusing on the financial side of it, that they're concerned about the administration and getting put on a registration, you know, um, kind of thing for for their faith. Um, has that played into your thoughts at all, you know, as you look at planning for the future? I mean, some of these people are talking about going to Canada um, from some of the fear after the election. Um what do you what do you yeah. take what, what's your take on that have you talked with colleagues so uh, what are those conversations like i will say going back roughly a year when trump became the nominee we've had lots of discussions you know my wife who is not 
uh, from an immigrant family. Her, her family goes back in the U.S. many generations. She's Caucasian, married me. We have kids that have foreign-sounding last names and foreign-sounding first names. And uh, being Muslim, yeah, we, I've had a ton of these conversations with friends and with family. Um, and it, it's... I One thing that hasn't directly impacted is my financial strategy. Maybe that's because being born and raised here as an American citizen, you know, while the concept of being put on a registry for my faith is certainly something that, you know, I think there's still people out there that want to do, to some degree, I've said, you know what, and I, I won't curse on your podcast, so I won't say what I was about to say, but I'll say, you know what, forget them. Uh, I'm going to live my life, and I'm not going to go into hiding. I'm not going to pretend I'm someone else. I'm not going to have my kids pretend they're someone else. Uh, this is as much my country as it is anyone else's out there who doesn't like who I am or where my family came from, and I'm not going to change my approach. Had I been a immigrant here on a green, you know, here on a visa, who had to have a job to even maintain my, you know, presence in the United States, I I certainly would have a different perspective. Uh, you know, the random person out there who doesn't like people with dark skin color and foreign sounding names doesn't necessarily discriminate between me being a citizen and them being, you know, on a visa. Uh, they see someone foreign walking down the street or in their doctor's office, and that might be just their reaction. I don't think the majority of America thinks that way. I There certainly is more of an element of, you know, hatred that has come out over the past year that, you know, I don't think it was ever not there. It's just easier. It's it's more accepting to be in public with this now, even in the political arena. It's more accepting now that our president is validating some of these feelings for the common Joe who didn't like that person in the doctor's office, didn't like his doctor's accent, whatever it may be, to voice that. And so, I, you know, we I've joked about moving to Canada. Uh, my wife, I think, who, you know, she would, apart from her last name, which is now shared with mine, would never be taken for a foreigner uh has is frankly been more worried about it than me i think partially because of our children and you know that's probably where i'm more worried about it you know it, you know i've got kids who are now growing up in this environment who the, the youngest ones are too young to under, to even know what's going on the oldest ones old enough to understand some of it you know he followed some of the election last year and this year and while he's not even nine years old yet he, he understands that life is a little bit different now uh with barack you know barack obama versus donald trump it's a different not just political environment, but a different cultural environment. And so we don't spend enough time on it to try and scare him, but enough time to make him aware of what, you know, things he just has to sort of think about from a general perspective. But, you know, it does influence my day-to-day life uh, in terms of what I do when I go to work or when I put money into a savings account or whatever it may be, um, because there's certain things you can't plan for. And, if it turns out that someone's going to put my name on a registry or put me in an internment camp because I'm Muslim, well, that, you know, I guess you could say that's something I could have planned for by putting my money in, a, in an offshore bank account in Switzerland or something, but that's not something I should have to plan for. And if someone wants to do it, I'm going to fight them tooth and nail. And I expect I'll have a lot of people helping me fight them tooth and nail. And, until, and frankly, right now, it's not happening. We have lots of people already advocating for us people that don't know me don't know my family don't know my religion who are out there saying no that's that's not something you can do and so i am heartened despite the fact that we have a very negative political environment right now that while i disagree with some of the political policies that are changing healthcare potentially or tax reform or you know the environment 
there really hasn't been as much for people like me a direct impact because I'm born here. You know, obviously undocumented immigrants are having a much harder time and I have a great deal of empathy for them. And I, I, I'm quite hopeful the political environment will change over the next two to four years. And, you know, it's certainly possible that people will get voted out of office. And while people's feelings are not out in the open, uh, policies that people are worried about now and I was worried about last year may never come to fruition, but I'm not going to stop saving. I'm not going to stop planning on a retirement date. I'm not going to stop saving for my kid's college. I'm not going to send them to a college overseas or move my family to Pakistan because of who our president is. That's not who I am. It's not my family. And I'm not going to be chased away by people that just don't like me. I, I wasn't I'm not like that now. I won't be like that in the future. Well, thank you for sharing that. I just, I really want to just bring this out into the open as, as something that I think is important. And I, I congratulate you on continuing the path, you know, not giving in to fear. And um, gosh, I mean, if I were in that situation, I would probably just be socking away a bunch of money in the bank. And You know, it's, it's funny. So part of the reason I ended up starting a blog, even though it's only been three months since it's gone online, is is because I wanted more of a voice for myself. Going back a full year, I had a lot of thoughts that I tried to share in person or on Facebook, and it was sort of a useless discourse because either everyone agreed with you or they just disagreed with everything you said, and I got tired of it. And I wanted a chance just to say what I wanted to say, you know, and hopefully have some people read it, hopefully have some people understand it. And that's why part of the blog is about religion and family and not just money and being a doctor. It's because that's a big portion of our identity. And I wanted a chance to express that time to time in a way that I could, I could verbalize without causing a fight or an argument. And so I started thinking about this blog basically around the election time, even though it took five months to actually have a website up and running. I was already thinking about it back then. And uh, just for people to go and peruse, are there any particular posts that you think might be good to, to cause thought-provoking uh, on, on your website? to point people to? So I think the very first post I wrote was the one that was most open about interactions relating to politics and religion. It's called Country Road. And if you go to the uh, to the About or Archives page, you'll find it pretty easily, the very first post. And probably the most honest post about it. And while I've touched on religion multiple times since then, I think that's the one that was sort of the core of why I wanted to start writing. Regarding other topics, you know, you, we were talking about finances and money. Uh, probably the probably the, you know, I don't know that any of my writing is good. I can't say that yet. I'm, I'm not experienced as a writer. And so there's probably plenty of people out there who can criticize my writing justifiably, but probably one of the better pieces I've written is called love and marriage parentheses and money. And was really about what we actually were touching on earlier about saving first and not doing budgets and our, our family approach to money, because, you know, it's obvious you can tell by talking with me and reading the blog. I spend a lot of time thinking about this. My wife has other priorities. She lets me manage a lot of this. We discuss it. We make shared goals. We don't always agree with things. And, you know, she's, I'm stubborn. She's stubborn. We're both very strong, <laughs> opinionated people that don't view the world exactly the same way when it comes to things like money to some degree. And so I think that post highlights some of it. Um, yeah, I think you may at some point bring up the, the academic research article that I recently published on personal finance and literacy. I think that's from a from an academic output related to money. You know, we'll get to that. That is one of the most fun things I wrote because it's talking about one of the things I'm spending all my time on at work is educating people on training, ed educating trainees on personal finance. 
All right, well, let's take a pause here for a second and go to our commercial break. I'm having that special offer, my friends, where you can get every single episode of the podcast on for download for you, and maybe I'll even send it to you on a USB drive, as well as getting a bonus copy of my book, The Tax Reduction Prescription, an e-copy of it, both of those things, hundreds of hours of material, dozens of ways to slash your taxes for only $5. Text less taxes, L-E-S-S, taxes to 44222. And you will get sent from there a link in your email to the checkout page to buy both of those things for $5. And I'm curious to, in talking about this study, which we're going to have a show link to it, uh, a link to it in the show notes, which people could look at on iTunes, because I think there's some really interesting things in there. I have a lot of questions about it uh, as, as we look at it. We don't have time for, for all sure. of them, but we'll fit in what we can today. Um, first, I want to know, in creating this study that you and your colleagues did, uh, what kind of thoughts did you have coming into it? I know as much as we want, we don't want to make assumptions, but I'm sure you had to have some sort of, some sort of thoughts and expectations coming into this study. So this study sort of grew organically. I didn't honestly come into it with a preset idea of what I was going to find. I, I came in with a question. This, in long story short, I'll, I'll let your readers actually go read the blog post. It goes into more in-depth on this if those who are enterprising enough to go find my blog. But the, the reason I ended up doing the study was because I was asked by a colleague of mine who knows I enjoy learning personal finance to teach some of our trainees in my division, which is just a, six people, the train, the fellows, do some personal finance education because no one was doing any of this anywhere on our campus. And so I said, let me survey them to figure out what they know and don't know so I can make a lecture appropriately. And then I said, you know what? I'm going to survey these five people and make this time for this. Let me survey the entire pediatric residency program in my department and give and design these lectures and give them the same lectures I'm designing for my fellowship. And then I said, you know what? If I'm going to spend this time surveying these people, let me survey the whole university. And then through Jim Dolly at Code Investor, I got approached by people from University of Arizona who said, hey, can we partner with you? And I ended up surveying University of Arizona as well. And the, the whole idea came down to let me find out what they know in terms of what's their basic literacy level and what are they doing right now? What, what are they not doing? And I sort of expected that because I know most people were not spending a lot of time the way I was learning this, that the literacy level would not be high and certain things would be deficient. Uh, so I, I wasn't necessarily expecting high scores on the quiz aspect of the study that we ended up doing or lots of people having wills because I know most people don't think about that in training. So yeah. I sort of knew going in that what I was going to find, but I didn't know to what degree or what to emphasize more in my education. So the whole point, honestly, the whole point of doing this survey to begin with was actually to help me design my lectures that I was going to give. It wasn't actually meant <laughs> to be a standalone product at the time. But it quickly grew into that once I realized the potential of it that, hey, this data isn't out there. I should do it this way so I can make this useful data for other people. And I also said, let me make this useful data to take to the administrators at the medical school level and say, hey, look, our trainees don't know anything and they probably want it. I'm, you know, so we should be trying to teach them. And so that's what it ultimately became was let's let's use this as evidence to to say we need to give it, this to our trainees in some formal curriculum. Well, 
congratulations on on getting it done and it's it's the the baby that kept on growing and growing and became king kong or something um and it could become bigger um at the end of the day which people can of course read into it and we'll, we'll go into some of it here did you feel happy heartened disheartened you know by the results a mix of both you know what what were your emotions as as you look at the results of the findings here well, this is, this is probably going to sound bad, but I, I was fairly happy that trainees were not doing very well in some regards, only because it made it easier to justify doing education. On the other hand, you would have rather that they were all doing great and it was clear that the educational lectures were a waste of time. And so it depends <laughs> on really what, what you're trying to justify, I suppose. I mean, really for the sake of the trainees, it would have been better that they were getting this in high school and college and medical school and that the trainees at our institution and elsewhere, University of Arizona, were doing so well that you only need to give them tune-ups and occasional consultations just to make sure they're on the right path for 20 years from now. Um, but unfortunately, we all know that most people are not getting that routinely, and not everyone even has the opportunity to. Some people have the opportunity to and don't use it, and some just never get the opportunity because of whatever circumstances got them to where they are. And so it was really, it really just came down to affirmation. Once you start talking to people, once you start talking with the trainees, you realize that while there's a few people that are out there, you know, a, a top 10%, like in every class that knows way more than I do, I'm sure, there's a bulk of 75% that need a lot of help just to get reminded of the basics, to get on the right basic pathway, to not veer off into the woods. And this study was just really affirmation, I think, of what, frankly, people already know. I don't think there's anyone at all shocked by the results. Um, maybe shocked that some things were worse than, uh, worse, as bad as they were, but... I don't know that anyone who was formally looking at this or informally looking at this or just talking with their friends would be surprised by anything we found because I think people realize that doctors in training just don't know this because it's not part of being a doctor and it's not what you're expected to know. So, you know, in that regards, I think it ended up being what we thought it was going to be. Yeah, well, and it put some some numbers behind it, right? Some some data to back up some of those, and particularly maybe areas to focus on. Um, I, I don't want to get into what what specifically they were because I'd encourage everyone to read the study. But it, it it was interesting to me as I looked at it that there were some things that people knew really really well, yeah. and there were other things that to me were very related, but they didn't know at all. And as you look at the different kinds of options out there what was your thought on that you know did you see conflicting data like i did as you looked at the results um what were your impressions i think what we found was that the very very basics people sort of knew but even then they were unsure about them quite a bit and mm. anything beyond the basics it was sort of all over the place i i think there was a handful of people that just knew everything because it was for anyone who spent a little bit of time studying or learning basic personal finance, a good chunk of what was in that survey would have been easy to answer or they would have checked the right boxes in terms of, oh yeah, I'm already doing this, or I'm already doing this. I think there wasn't anything that was significantly conflicting in terms of you know people that were doing this well but doing this terribly. There was a lot of people that indicated they were unhappy with their personal kind of financial condition I think probably the one thing that surprised me the most is we asked a question about investment risk tolerance and a good chunk of people said they they weren't very willing to take investment risks. And I think that probably surprised me the most because 
and maybe in hindsight it shouldn't because a lot of young people who don't have a lot of money or in debt don't want to take risks with anything related to money. Yeah. But when you're 25 and you're trying to pay off debt and you need to make a lot of money and save for 30 years from now, the idea of not having investment risk tolerance is it's what it's what will kill your ability to do anything. If you can't even put money into a into a stock mutual fund and let it sit for 10 years, you're never going to get to be retired. And so getting over that hump, I think, is maybe something that people need more focus on, which, you know, I don't think people realize how risk averse people are with their money at that point. Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's uh, something I even look at at myself, uh, for example, I tend to, to not, even though I'm relatively young at 36, I'm just not super aggressive. Um, that's just how I think for some of us that have lived through a number of different financial crises, it's a lot different than those people that are 50, 60 years old and has saw big, big booms, right? You know, it's if you look at the, the averages, uh, rates of return aren't what they were. Um, so I, I think that's probably part of it in, in my opinion. Um, any thoughts on, on that history difference? I think it's uh, all a matter of how you view it. So I, I'm only a year older than you. I, I guess, as I mentioned, I was a little fortunate that I was able to invest during a Gulf War recession and sort of invest and forget. And then, and a recession hit and I was watching my balances go down. Like my first real investments were cratering in front of me and you know, the question was, do you keep putting the money in? Do you stop and wait for the market to start going back up before you put the money in? Um, do you pull it out? And I kind of went back to those basic investment principles and I said, you know what? I want to invest. I want to put this money in. What goes down eventually comes up. And if it doesn't, we're all screwed in some completely different way. So for me, I, I sort of took the opposite. I was like, this is more of an opportunity to invest. It was like, hey, the prices are dirt, you know, a rock bottom. I, I, I want to buy now while I can. And frankly, right now, every time I see a big market drop of 5%, I wish I had $10,000 just laying around just to throw into the market. But that money, whatever money I have to invest is already in the market. So I don't have 10,000 boxes laying around just put into the market anytime it happens. So I think, unfortunately, people took the wrong lessons because we had a big recession. And while maybe we haven't had a boom like the dot-com boom, you know, we've had sustained growth for several years. And people that have been sitting on the sidelines, if my colleagues from residency didn't put their money back in and, you know, in residency... They would have missed out on eight, several, several years of growth, you know. So I, I bought a lot of money, you know, not lots. I mean, I bought a lot of uh, shares, you know, when I was in training, during a market downturn that have now been growing steadily to well, well, well above the original value because I said, you know what, I have this money to invest. This is what I've said I'm going to do, and we're going to stick with it. And this money is meant for 30 years from now, not for next year. So who cares if it goes down tomorrow? Yeah. No, I think. Um you're coming from a great place and I, I want to fast forward to part of uh, the uh, uh, little excerpt I'm going to read here sure. and I'm going to paraphrase in some parts what you wrote or someone your, you and your colleagues wrote combined because I'm sure it wasn't just yourself yeah. coursework about the basics of personal finance and important financial considerations relevant to medical practice and health insurance should be incorporated into the curriculum during medical school and graduate medical education even brief interventions, interventions early in training such as improving 
the understanding of the risk involved in different types of investments or diversifying in order to minimize risk could lead to large financial benefits. Student loan debt is high uh, and poor financial habits may add to distressed burdens. Thus, financial education could show long-term improvements for their long-term financial health, both personally and in practice. So here's my question. There's this tension between someone like myself that's not a physician that wants to help and even like I noticed even like in our emails early on as as I was trying to get you to come on to the show without actually knowing that that the study was coming I was kind of funny how how that all timed like there there's this suspicion about educational providers and and perhaps for good reasons because of idiots that have blown it for some of us and um obviously you're passionate about this subject you're did this whole study to educate your uh, trainees that are part of the program what do you think this should look like you know this this education component so i've already been working on that our own uh, department or a pediatrics department we've worked actually with our internal medicine department to actually design a four now five-part lecture series for the residents and fellows in internal medicine and pediatrics we did it for the first time last year and this year we're actually where i'm going assume i'm done with this podcast is to go work on this curriculum is a five-part lecture series for our trainees for this year starting in a couple of weeks and what you know, I, I think, well, I think this should start earlier in medical school, college, high school. I mean, as little kids, parents teaching it, whatever you can. I will, ideally, the younger you start, the better. You know, focusing on the physician aspect, I think they need one, loan or payment, loan debt, how to attack your loans, strategies for private versus refinancing first, et cetera. I think that's a huge component for now when 80% of people have, you know, six-figure yeah. debt. I think, you know, understanding that first and foremost is the most important thing. You know, I don't think necessarily spending a ton of time on budgets is necessary, but I think the basics of personal finance are huge and also covering things like the basics of what investment accounts are, what, you know, things about financial independence, things about, you know, what a mortgage is and how to decide on certain mortgages, things on, the, uh, you know, your credit scores, your credit reports. I think there's a lot of basics that people are getting more familiar with now compared to doctors 10 years ago, but which people yeah. for the most part are still not. And I think that's a big portion but then there's a whole component that has nothing to do with personal finance. It's more finance as a physician. And so we actually now we have a whole panel talk that's physicians from different practice structures come and talk that can sort of ex discuss the background of their practice. So last year we had a physician, you know, physicians from a concierge practice, one who is purely academic, one who is private practice, um, but part of a hospital, and then another who is part of a hospital and sort of give the pros and cons of those settings. So you can understand, okay, I'm in an academic setting as a trainee, but these are the options I'm going to go. I don't have to sit, go, these, I, only, I don't have two options. I've got five options or 10 options. And then a whole discussion on things like contract negotiation. So we have a guest lecturer come talk about contract negotiation. And this is still, frankly, scratching the surface. This is just really the basics. I mean, there's even more you could do, but the, you know, there's a certain point where when you're a physician in training that you also have to learn about, you know, how to take care of the patient. And so we can't make 25 lectures on personal finance part of the curriculum right so you know there i think there's got to be three or four hours a year i think you know as a bare minimum with opportunities of where to go to find the rest that as needed do you think it, it really sounds like you strongly believe that 
these education components should be taught by physicians to other physicians rather than having outside parties part of the discussion at all? Not necessarily. I mean, there's an assumption there that there's someone available to adequately and competently teach and answer questions. And I don't think that's the case for every topic or for every institution. I think my anecdotal evidence talking with the trainees here when I've been giving these talks now for a few years is they appreciate having a physician come giving this talk because they feel like they're getting a straight talk. They don't feel like there's potentially a hidden agenda there to drive them to be your client. I think physicians prefer hearing it from physicians who have rooted them, sort of given themselves a rooting background in it because they're not worried about conflicts of interest or significant bias. So I think when the opportunity is there, that's preferred because what we're talking about is not high-end stuff that you need paid advice for. We're talking about, for the most part, the basics that people should be able to learn on their own. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I, I think I see merits in, in both sides of, of the argument um, as well myself. And I think having faculty that like yourself that are willing to do the training and put the time in, I mean, you're going to be developing a whole curriculum, uh, which obviously you know it, but still it's, it's the time and effort of doing it is, is great. Um, so thank you for doing that. Uh, I would love to know if you were servicing a uh, surveying practicing physicians rather than residents and fellows, how do you think, some of these answers would change. Would it be significantly higher, about the same? What do you think that would look like if you changed yeah, the study? That's a great question. So when I, when I tried to do that survey, I actually tried to survey my faculty at my university and I was told I wasn't allowed to, so I wish I had the data. I tried to get it and couldn't. Mm. I I think there's a good chance that the some of the basic quiz question answers and that would have been answered better. So I think it's possible a lot more of the check boxes of do you have a will would have been checked off by just having someone who knows what they're doing sort of guide them. I think had we sort of delved into spending habits and retirement goals and financial independence and understanding of where the money is going, I think we would have found a lot of physicians are not not necessarily re- re- as responsible with their money as they could be. Mm-hmm. You know, it, I think there's a lot of lifestyle, a lot, a lot of lifestyle inflation. I think there's a lot of people buying things that they think they can afford because they're going to work till they're 70, and so they buy things with the idea that they're going to work forever, and then they have to work forever because of that. So I think the you know, I think the biggest thing is we would have seen a mindset difference in terms of what's going to happen now. And I think people maybe sort of been locked into their approach as opposed to the trainee who I think is a little more malleable. And while they may not have a lot of investment risk tolerance now, they might in the future because they're still learning and they're more impressionable. I think a lot of the faculty physicians or physicians out of training at other places are sort of caught up in the doctor lifestyle. And I think that's that's not specific to any of my physicians here. I don't have an example in my head. I think that's just true of physicians everywhere. You know, mm-hmm. in terms of common things being common, doctors aren't good with their money. And common things being common, doctors make a lot of money compared to the average, you know, US person. And they tend to spend a lot of that money because they have a lot of money. And they don't necessarily think about the idea of, oh, I don't have to buy the Tesla, I could buy the Honda kind of thing. Uh, and then retire five years earlier or something. And so, you know, I think that that viewpoint is probably actually more prevalent now in people in med school who have $400,000 of debt and have to think about that 
compared to those who are 55 and had no debt coming out of med school because it was so much cheaper, they they grew up in a different financial era, and I think their perspective on it is very different. Interesting. Um, do you see yourself trying to do another study, maybe expanding this? What what is have you gotten reactions? from other faculty across the country? What, what has it been like since this has come out? So I have had several people contact me from universities around the country, some saying they're already in the middle of a study and I sort of beat them to it, publishing mine, or, or having stuff that they don't know what to do with but wanting to publish or wanting to collaborate. I think there is the potential for multi-center collaborations, look at trainees and faculty as well. I think that's an option. Uh, I think the other big push is actually trying to get people at the higher levels like the ACGME actually build requirements and for some curriculum, even an hour or two of basic core finance or something. However, institutions want to do it, it would be very highly variable. Um, I think I've already, I've already know that there's now that I've done the study and I'm getting contacted that there's, there's more physicians out there helping teach in their universities some of this than I realized. I mean, I know that was already having to a degree in my own institution, not just me, but other people here. But there's more than I realize doing this elsewhere. And I think as more of these studies come out, because I, as I mentioned, I'm not the only one who's done a study. I think you'll see more of this coming out over the next few years. You'll see this sort of grassroots groundswell of support coming up. And while it may not lead to the ACGME making some mandated change in the next 10 years, I think you'll see more trainees clamoring for it in their own institutions and more of a broad spread grassroots, as I said, approach to get this done in some form because people want it, people need it, and people will get it on their own eventually if they really want it. But it's really those who aren't going to go do it on their own that you want to reach. You know, the person that's going to go download your podcast is probably not necessarily the one that needs to hear my lecture. Yeah, no, I, I think that's probably true. Uh, well, we're running out of time okay. here in our, our interview today, and so we're going to skip some of the stuff I don't want oh, to ask, no. and we'll just Good have time. to leave it for another time. Um, but I'd love to know, Fad, sure. as you are thinking about the past and maybe you're thinking of some of your residents what advice would you give to a younger fod if you could sit down with him that had just come out of medical school that's a great question and i knew you were gonna ask that question i still don't have a great answer i think i may have partially answered this earlier and it probably would have been try to from the beginning get on the same financial philosophy as my wife so that way we could spend or not spend or save or not save with the same goals in mind initially and I think the biggest issue I had when I was getting my first real job as a resident in terms of higher income was I knew I wanted to save but I didn't know why and I and I think trying to crystallize that to some degree which is hard to do when you're just entering your career starting to think about the end of your career would have been very helpful. And while I certainly don't think I could have said at age 26, I'm going to retire when I'm 46 or something, I don't think I had that ability. I think having some financial philosophy of, okay, I want to save this proportion with the goal and this in mind, or these are the spending priorities I have, you know, so I'm going to pay myself first, which is a white coat investor thing, pay yourself first, save your save first, spend later. And then these are the things that are important to me. And I'm just not going to spend money on these things because if I want to go spend a bunch of money on you know, baseball tickets for the playoffs, then I'm not going to go spend money on a bunch of restaurants. And I think that philosophy, which I have much better now, I didn't have a decade ago. Hmm. And that that's a great answer. Um, I, I love it. 
Uh, well, first of all, I just want to say congratulations on the blog, and thank you for being here today. Thank you for, for sharing on the study, and I'm looking forward to, to hearing more from you. Do you have any closing thoughts that you want to offer to us out there? Yeah, so first, I will shamelessly plug my blog. Please go read it, roguedadmd.com. Uh, so that's closing thought number one. Um, closing thought number two is, I think regarding the finance aspect, I think there's a lot of people out there nervous about learning on their own, a lot of people nervous about doing it on their own. And I just want to reassure most people out there that you know you can do a lot more than you think you can. You don't need my help or necessarily even Jim Dolly's help or there's a lot of stuff out there you can learn on your own and you should go try to do it and realize it's not as scary as you think. It, being a doctor and learning how to resuscitate a patient, you can handle your basic investments as a resident. So you know, have confidence in yourself as someone who can manage your own dollars and cents. And I think, you know, regarding the other stuff we talked about, you know, we talked a little bit about faith and politics and culture. I think just spend a little more time thinking about what's going on in the person's life next to you. You know, I think as doctors, and I tell, I tell this to my trainees, we spend a lot of time being judgmental. And part of that's because we're supposed to be because we have to come to conclusions and make decisions. But we don't spend a lot of time thinking how someone got into their shoes financially, politically, religiously, medically. And I think pausing every so often to think about how the person next to me got there and reserving judgment sometimes might make a lot of this a lot easier to handle day to day. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for being with us, Fod. And uh, you mentioned they can find you on roguedadmd.com. Any other place that you would suggest for people to get in contact with you? Uh, that's the easiest place. If you want to contact me regarding anything professionally, I'd say start through the website. I can get you, you know, you can email me there and we can always move it over to my work email if necessary. Uh, but my email address is on the, my work, my blog email address is on the, on the blog website. It's super easy to send me a message anytime you want. Perfect. All right, my friends. Well, that wraps it up for today. And in the next podcast, of course, I would love the chance to hear your story and your journey with finances and outside of finances. And as always, hey, if you are loving this podcast, I have a big favor to ask of you. If you could please grab your colleague's iPhone, iPad, any sort of device, Android, that uh, you can help download the podcast, pick your favorite episodes, and then if they don't like it, you can just blame it on me. It's all my fault because I told you to do it. And if they love it, you get to take all the credit, all right? So uh, with that being said, make sure to check out the podcast website at www.drfreedompodcast.com. Or if you have questions, comments, thoughts, you can reach me, Dave, at drfreedompodcast.com. For the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, this is Dave Deniston. And remember, my friends, remember to slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. I'm having that special offer, my friends, where you can get every single episode of the podcast on for download for you. And maybe I'll even send it to you on a USB drive, as well as getting a bonus copy of my book, The Tax Reduction Prescription, an e-copy of it. Both of those things, hundreds of hours of material, dozens of ways to slash your taxes for only $5. Text less taxes, L-E-S-S, taxes to 44222. And you will get sent from there a link in your email to the checkout page to buy both of those things for $5. 
All right. Let me know, my friends, uh, other guests, other people you might be interested in. would love to connect and help more and more physicians. For the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, this is Dave Denniston. And remember, my friends, remember to slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle.